0: Psalm 45, and the sixth verse. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of ophir. As far the reading of God's word this evening, and may he bless it to us. We leave the eighth verse of Psalm 45, mindful that we have been in the ivory palaces, mindful that the psalmist has taken us into the inmost recesses of the royal dwellings, and he has shown to us the king, the king as he is, glo- that is, as he is clothed with his royal raiment, and clothed with these robes that are so fragrant. These costly, these, these precious smells that waft through these courts, of course, speak to us about the glory of Christ, the glory of the God man, the glory of Zion's Redeemer. And as we saw as we thought of last Lord's Day evening, these are the graces that show to us Christ as he has taken upon himself the work of our of our redemption as he, even his humanity, has been fitted fully for the task, that he may be a sufficient Savior. This is where the psalmist has left us in the 8th verse. Here we have a picture of Christ in his loveliness and even as God-man. But as we come to the ninth verse, you'll notice that we remain in the ivory palaces, we remain in the court, but... But our focus, in some sense, shifts, albeit slightly. It shifts nonetheless. We encounter, in our translations, three kinds of women. You have, in verse 9, first of all, the king's daughters. Then you have honorable women. And then finally, of course, in the last line, you have the queen herself. Now, as we look at these three kinds of women, of course, we recognize, first of all, that princesses, that is king's daughters, are first in order. Uh, these are those likely who are beyond, who should be thought of as being beyond the pale of Israel, even though this is allegory, symbol. The idea is these are great ones. These are ones who would be sent typically, if it were not an allegory, as emissaries, as part of international alliances. These are the great ones of the earth. That's what, you're, that's what you and I are supposed to have in mind. But when we come to that next category, to the honorable women of verse 9, I want you to notice that that word honorable occurs elsewhere throughout Scripture and is translated elsewhere throughout Scripture in different ways. So, so take, for instance, how this is used when the Queen of Sheba's arrival is described. When the Queen arrives to Jerusalem, she arrives, the text tells us, with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. The word precious is the word honorable in our text. If you move just a few uh, chapters before that, when the narrator is telling us about the construction of the temple, he writes, the king commanded and they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. That's the temple. The word costly in that text is the self-same word that's rendered here honorable. Why am I saying this to you? Well, beloved, as you look at this text, that word that is used in this text to describe what we have in the court before us is a word that is used throughout the scriptures to describe objects such as precious stones, such as something that is costly, something that is genuinely precious, an object that is certainly worth quite a lot of money. But when we come to our text, though that's the word, the word takes on a different form. The word comes to us not just as costliness, not just as preciousness. It comes to us not describing an object, but in the abstract. What I mean by that here is something like this. You have these ones described as being in the king's preciousness in the king's costliness. Now, our translators have supplied for us the word women. The word women is not in the original at all. Um, and the reason why is because it seems somewhat awkward, doesn't it, to, to describe just these ones standing in costliness. But if you look at the translators even before the authorized version, you'll notice an interesting par- a paradigm. First of all, you have in the Matthew's translation... King's daughters in thy goodly array. Uh, in 1639, Ainsworth put it this way. The text should read, in thy precious honorable ornaments or even palaces. The Dutch annotations read, in thy costliness. And even more modern tr- uh, translators as well would even go so far as to make a synecdoche to say that these ones are standing in the king's jewels. The idea then is, in this text, is not that you have three categories of women, but two. But the first category, the king's daughters that are ascribed here, stand in the king's preciousness. They stand in his costliness, his beauty. And so you could render it fairly this way. King's daughters stood, to add another word for for help, in thy precious garments. And so what you have in this text at the, at the onset are princesses who are in the king's court, but they are clothed with his riches, clothed with garments of his supply. Now as we come then to the second line, when we come to the queen, we have the psalmist tell us that she stood upon his right hand and in gold of Ophir, That obviously is a parallel, is it not? Here you have in the very first line, you have the princesses standing in the costliness of the king. And then in the second line, you have the queen standing in gold. And of course, we should understand that that is supposed to be derived from the king's riches as well. Gold of Ophir, the word Ophir there is describing a place that in the ancient world was largely well known for its mines for precious metal, silver and gold. And so you have in this ninth verse a picture of the court. The psalmist tells us that on the one hand you have those who are princesses, king's daughters, and they are covered in the king's riches. And on the other hand you have the queen who likewise is adorned with a costliest, with the most precious of garments, and again from the king himself. Now that helps us, I think, to understand what the psalmist sets before us by way of symbol. First of all, we understand here that the psalmist is keen to trace all back to the king. Everything goes back to Christ and to his wealth and to his preciousness. It's not enough for the psalmist to talk about these ones who stand in the court and simply say they were well-dressed. He must tell us the source and the source is the king himself. That shows us too, doesn't it? Really what the purpose of this ninth verse is. The ninth verse hasn't really adjusted our focus at all. You see, from the very onset, the psalmist has been keen to set before us the majesty of Christ, the glory of this king upon the throne. And in the ninth verse, it is still the glory of that king. It is still the majesty of Christ that is the psalmist's subject. But now when he thinks of the majesty of Christ, he sees that majesty through the adornments and through the garments of those who are in the court. It is not their costliness that he here lauds. It's not their beauty that he extols. It is that beauty which they possess as being derived from the King. As being something received from Christ. In Christ's court then, all beauty, all loveliness we're supposed to see, is derived from him. Now, if we keep that before us this evening, then the theme really is very straightforward. If we understand, of course, as we should, that the queen in this text is the church of Christ... And if we understand, as we'll see in just a moment's time, that even the the princesses in the very first line really are a component part of that bride. We understand that here the psalmist has in view the beauty of the church. Here he is reflecting upon the bride of Christ as she sets before the world in her beauty the loveliness and the costliness of her bridegroom. If we keep that before us, then the theme is simply that the loveliness of the church exhibits Christ's glory. I want us to consider that under the two lines that we have in our text. First of all, the attendance or the assistance that you have in the first line. And these are those, as we already said, who are described as king's daughters. And I suppose when we come to a psalm such as this, a text that is obviously symbolic our, our first thought is, well, we want to identify immediately who these ones are. If this is not really a royal wedding that took place millennia ago, if this is speaking to us through physical and historical ideas, but of spiritual realities, the question, of course, is, who then are the prince's daughters? Who then are the king's daughters, the princesses? But really, when we come to a text like this, the first question can't be who. Who? The first question must be, how do they function in the text? That's the first question we have to ask to answer that question of identity. What purpose do they hold in a text such as this? And so as we look throughout Psalm 45, especially verses 14 and 15, we find a parallel that's helpful. There in Psalm Psalm 45, 14 and 15, you'll find here that there The bride, now is the one being addressed. And she's told that at a future moment, there will be those who he describes as virgins who are her companions. Now what's striking in verses 14 and 15 is, the psalmist is describing in the future what is present in verse 9 in our text. But as you look at this moment in verses 14 and 15, you'll notice that the queen here has those who are described as her companions. Those who are in the court with her. Manifestly the same people who are described here in verse 9. But how are they described in verse 15? These are those, you could translate it this way, who are her assistants, who are her attendants. These are those, in other words, who are the bride's helpers. These are those whose purpose it was to prepare her for this meeting. To prepare her for this wedding. And I suppose the analogy transcends, um, transcends the Old Testament and comes into our own day. Uh, certainly we have analogies in our own wedding customs. But the idea is just that, isn't it? it? It's that these ones are her companions for a purpose. These are those who are waiting upon her to prepare her for this moment. They are her assistants. Now, if you look at that text in light of verses 14 and 15, then we understand these ones are those who are her helpers, who are truly her companions, her attendants. But that's not all the text says. If we remember what we said in that very first line of the ninth verse, that, that the word honorable or preciousness there is actually describing the way in which these ones are clothed, And we understand that these ones who are attending the queen, here attending the church, are are those who are also clothed in Christ's comeliness, also partakers of Christ's provision, of his riches. That I think helps us understand then who are the ones that the psalmist has in view. These are those who are helpers to the church, but who are also, also clothed with Christ's beauty, also partaking of his loveliness. The identity, I think, becomes all the clearer when we hold a text like the one that we read before us just moments ago, 2 Corinthians 11. There the apostle says, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The apostle strikingly at this point says that part of his work is actually the presentation of the church of Corinth to Christ and the presentation of her as chaste. That is her real beauty, her genuine piety. This is part of the apostolic function. And we could go to so many other texts, and we will in just a moment time, but... But you see very pointedly, I think, in this text, the attendants who are in view, those who are there to prepare her for this wedding, these are those who are are themselves clothed with the righteousness, clothed with the beauty and the graces of Christ, and who are really helpers to the people of God. And it stands to reason, then, that the ones whom the psalmist has in view are those who are elders, ministers, ministers, who labor for the church's edification. Now, if we keep this all before us, that this is really a text that holds out to us not so much the beauty of the church for its own sake, but holding out to us the beauty of the church so that the majesty of Christ would be magnified, then it prompts a question. How is it that these ones who are attendants to the church set before us the majesty of our Redeemer? holding that these are elders and ministers. It stands to reason that this is, of course, setting before us the glory of Christ for a number of reasons. It was Christ, after all, who gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, and note this, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is their calling, but note the origin. There are offices that they hold, come from the ascended Christ. In fact, the apostle makes the point all the clearer just beforehand. When he, that is Christ, ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The gifts that he describes are the very gifts that I've just read to you. These offices for the help of the church. These offices that Christ has given to the church are of his own creation. These are not things that the church has dreamed up for herself. These things that are there for the edification of the body of Christ are there by Christ's design, by his institution. And so, beloved, as you see these ones truly attending the work of the bride, truly, as the apostle has it, earnest to set before Christ a chaste virgin. But beloved, what you find here are minister's who are really just functioning as Christ would have them. It's not their own ingenuity. It's not their own, it's not their own interest. All of these things flow directly from Christ. Now, as you look at these ones, you see that they are so dedicated then to the bride. The apostle puts it this way, Let no man glory in man. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. Know what he says there. All things belong to you who are in Christ. But the point is that even that includes the ministers of the gospel. They belong to you. They are yours genuinely. And that by Christ's design. He he stresses this even further, 2 Corinthians 4. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. We are truly attendants to you, you who are the bride of Christ. We are but your servants, as he would say elsewhere, but helps to your joy. This is the calling. The calling by Christ is that these ones would attend the bride Genuinely and for the good of the church. And what's striking, beloved, as you look at this text, that the kind of attendance they're supposed to have certainly is not only with the word of mouth. The apostle puts it this way. Peter writes, Be examples unto the flock. That is every aspect of their lives, not just their words. But every aspect of their lives is really to be calculated for an example for the good of the people of God. Now, beloved, if you find this, our text tells us pointed, pointedly, what you have here is something that only exalts the grace of Christ. It is not to the praise of any man, not to the praise of any minister or elder that you find fitting this kind of description. These, things are ju- these ones are just clothed in his comeliness, in his preciousness. They hold a, an office of his institution, and if they hold it right, they hold it by his grace alone. But beloved, as you look at this text, then what you find here are men described who are just tools, really, in the hand of Christ the faithful elder, the faithful minister in the church, the faithful deacon even, they are but paintbrushes. It is Christ who wields them. The portrait is of Christ's institution. It is of Christ's artistry. These ones are but his instruments. And beloved, then all glory must, must it not, go to the artist. All glory must all go to to the one who has clothed these ones in the way that they would be most effective to the good of the church. Uh, I, I don't want to linger here longer, but for those who are ministers, elders, officers in the church, there is a challenge in this text, isn't there? This text tells us that the glory of Christ is manifest when these ones are clothed with his preciousness. Not with their own ingenuity. Not with their own wisdom. Not with their own strength. But genuinely with that which comes only from Christ. And beloved, that is the call for every officer in the church. Ministers, elders, and deacons. If we would set before the onlooking world a picture of the glory of Christ among his people. It must be his comeliness, his likeness that we're pursuing. But secondly, that brings us to the queen herself. If those are her attendants, what are her adornments? We find her here clothed in gold. She's clothed beautifully. She's clothed ornately by Christ. What you find here is a parallel to the text that we read in Isaiah. Isaiah. There, Zion says, He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. In the New Testament, you have this, John saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. But strikingly, beloved, holding together what we said before, the church's beauty, as we have set before us, is tied inextricably to Christ. It is His beauty that is upon her. It is the gold that she wears is of His provision. Her garments from His richness. His, her beauty from His beautification. And beloved, what you find then here is a beautiful picture, truly, of the church. The church, as Christ, beautifies her by conforming her to his likeness. And what ways does Christ do this? Beloved, you see this in so many ways, but but take perhaps the categories with which we're most familiar. When the soul is brought from death to life, when she is regenerated, what do you find? Well, the apostle puts it this way. You have put on Christ Christ. The idea there is is that now Christ has become all for you. And and even in regeneration, even in the soul that is not yet glorified, there is a beauty that genuinely is there. Joseph Carroll puts it this way. He says, every saint and servant of God hath all grace in him, every grace in some degree or other, for all the linaments and limbs of the new man are formed together in the soul of those that are regenerate. The idea is that in regeneration, just as total depravity touched every part of man, regeneration also touches every part of man. And now she becomes, that soul now becomes more like Christ. He is the one who in regeneration beautifies her in this way. That's of course not the only way. Of course, when we think of justification, we think of something very similar. Of Him, says the Apostle, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He has made unto us righteousness. The idea is there that Christ's righteousness now stands for His people. Of course, beloved, we know these themes. But the point is, it is His righteousness. If we stand beautiful before the bar of heaven... It is in his beauty that we stand. But this is true also of sanctification. Striking is you have those commands, don't you? Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. But Beloved, as you look at this text, you'll find that even with those commands in view, the apostle goes on to say, that all of their fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.11 He calls them in Colossians 1, Walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. There's the command. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But then note this. Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. Unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Note what the Apostle is saying. There is the command that certainly pertains to all who are in Christ. We are to strive to put to death the old man. And to live under righteousness. New obedience is required of us. And we should strive for it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2. But when that's found. He says those fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ. When that's found, when his people are sanctified, he says it is according to his glorious power. Who beautifies his people in sanctification? Well, it's of course Christ. It is his work. And then finally, of course, we come to glorification. There the apostle puts it pointedly. We look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Beloved, note in every, in every step that we've taken, from regeneration all the way to glorification, the prevailing theme in every point is that the people of God are beautified, as they become more conformed to Christ. At every point, beloved, the apostle, and all the texts that I've mentioned here, at every point, the apostle draws a direct connection between the benefit the believer receives and his likeness to the Lord Jesus. Entailment, I think, is very clear, isn't it? Queen stands in the court, clothed with garments not her own. She stands beautified, but not by herself. She stands as one who has been beautified by the king, whose clothing, whose ornaments are all from his provision. And I think those concrete analogies are helpful, aren't they? This really negates any room for boasting in the Christian life. Every aspect of your new life in Christ, even as you seek to fulfill those commands, even as you labor, as the Apostle calls us to, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, even as you do those things, whatever real beauty is found in you, it is of Christ. Christ. They are, as the apostle says, the fruits of righteousness which are by him. Beloved, if the minister of the gospel, if the elder is a paintbrush in Christ's hand, you are canvas. And so where then is boasting? Are we praying more? Are we more earnest in our worship? Are we seeking to do more in terms of meeting needs for others? or Are we seeking to be, to be more knowledgeable in the things of God? Or are, we, are we seeking to do more in outreach? These are all good things. But beloved, whatever there is truly beautiful, it's of His provision. It is of Christ and Him alone. Now as we close... This text, of course, begs the question, are we a people who are striving for this conformity into the likeness of Christ? Do we long to have his provision applied to us? I suppose that's a question that that seems almost unnecessary. Of course, of course I'm striving for that, but, but remember what that requires in order to be clothed in this way to take on this kind of Christ likeness beloved how much pride has to be devo- how much pride has to die how much self-righteousness has to be removed how much self-serving has to be put aside you see that's the difficulty to put on the new man, one must put off what was old. And so are we striving indeed for this conformity, putting to death those robes that we so, so naturally cling to that we might merely be clothed with his costliness, his beauty. And beloved, if you are, if you are striving in these ways, This text tells us wonderfully that his bride is indeed beautified. Christian, you and I will see, as the devil would have us, either no sin or only sin. And the Christian often will reflect upon their imperfections and will often mourn for them, but in such a way as they forget that Christ is the one who beautifies. Mourn for, their, mourn for their sins they must, but they should never forget the one who has undertaken to clothe them with his beauty. Well, they're holding on to this, that Christ is the one who indeed will present his bride as one adorned for her husband. That he will present you indeed as a chaste version espoused to Christ, notwithstanding every infirmity you see in yourself. Beloved, that's a comfort that you and I can lay hold of, a comfort that comes from this text itself. Despite so much sin, Christ indeed will beautify his own. But finally, beloved, as we close, of course the application, the exhortation, is that we are to strive. Strive for more likeness to Christ, recognizing that all beauty, any real beauty that we have, is only as we stand in conformity to him. And so strive. It's Philippians two eleven and 12. It is, sorry, 12 and 13, that calling. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Beloved, as a congregation, this is what is crucial. At the end of the day, there are congregations that are growing. You'll find pews being filled, new buildings being built. But, beloved, it's this beauty that is most important for a gathered people of God. This is what is most important. Not how many numbers do we have. Not, not how well known are we in the community. What is genuinely crucial. Are we a people who are taking upon themselves more the likeness of Christ? Are we actually growing in holiness? Love, this text tells us that Christ's bride will be beautified by him. May that be our prayer. May we seek that in earnest from his hand. Amen.